Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to Science and Futurism's monthly livestream Q&A on October the 29th. We're going just one moment, though we keep having some minor technical issues so it might be a little bit glitchy uh, as we get used to it, which to be fair happens a lot of the time. So, as usual, we'll be joined by my lovely wife and co-host Sarah Fowler-Arthur, who will be reading off your questions from the audience, and we'll go ahead and get started with those uh, whenever you guys are ready. You mean whenever the phone actually oh, works the to pull them up. Let me see if I can bring them up to actually ask questions off of instead while I move that around. I got a new phone. <laughs> so and it won't I, let me actually, log but... into anything. <laughs> so, um, Imagination Ship asks, which do you think is more plausible to come to fruition, FTL or multiverse travel? And I would say that I'd be a little bit more believable about multiverse travel just because... Generally speaking, FTL requires us to violate known rules, whereas um, we don't know how to actually get into touch with any kind of multiverse or detecting multiverse, so we don't know if there's going to be any way to get between them. If they exist, and in any meaningful sense, you should be able to travel to them. So either they don't exist, and you can't travel to them, or they do exist, and you probably can. You can be the philosophical argument that if you cannot contact them, detect them, or anything in any fashion, then they may as well not exist. So that's maybe semantic, but... Um, in that regard, there's nothing that says it's impossible if they exist. And if we can detect them, we can probably travel to them and interact with them. All right, the next question. Thank you, Maya Skill, for dropping it in so it would actually <laughs> ping me. And is from Raven. Hi, Isaac. What practical uses might suborbital space flight have? Um, you know, suborbital is actually one of those examples to explain that to people is when you orbit a planet, you go around it in a, a circle ellipse. When you're going suborbital, you're on an elliptical pathway that would actually intersect with the planet. But you can go up high in the air and fall right back down again. That would be an example of suborbital flight that would actually take you higher up than the uh, normal distance you are to space. So one example of a suborbital flight we might use regularly would be active support inside like a space tower. That is pretty much always by definition going to be suborbital just because you're trying to push things up. Um, it's also used for ICBMs a lot too. You have those deflected path trajectories because it's uh, you don't actually want them to have a chance to shoot your orbiting object, so you use a suppressed trajectory instead to land on faster. So those will be examples of how suborbital flight might be useful. Delivering weapons, delivering... I think we talked about this in the Soldier and Rescue episode. Uh, you might actually drop drop not just weapons or troops down, but uh, Soldier and Rescue personnel at very, very high velocities, and that would be an example where those kind of depressed trajectory, trajectories or um, some water flights could be useful. That would be the major ones that I can think of off the top of my head. All right. We have a question that was actually posted on Reddit, and it's from Miami's Last Capitalist. Thank you for your super chat. Are there any possible plans to save the ISS from destruction burning in atmosphere? <sighs> um, I mean, I guess that would be a question of, are we? do we have a way of saving it if it suddenly goes down into the atmosphere more than it should? Um, and that would be all about timing if there was a launch window to get back momentum. Uh, if you mean the sense of when we retire it, are we just going to let it fall into the uh, atmosphere? Um, I would hope not, but at the same time, when we retire it, because it wouldn't be safely useful anymore, and um, that would be an example of where do you, do you want to pay a lot of money to keep it up there, or can you find a new purpose? And of course, you don't retire if you can find a new purpose, but... Uh, it would be sad to let that one fall down. I, I'd rather we spend some extra energy, and it might be quite a lot of extra energy, to push into a higher orbit so we could just orbit for a long time and then we could... We're more prosperous in spacefaring cultural rescue our relics as opposed to just getting them stepped on or destroyed in the atmosphere as happened to all the other previous space stations. Those are gone forever. You're not going to get those back. And uh, I'd hate to see the ISS join them, but at the same time, rescuing it might be very expensive. So maybe you can settle this debate. If the enemy has fired missiles at your spaceship, which is a better point for defense, laser or kinetic? And if mixed, how so? Uh, by the way, apologies everyone if you see a little flickering across the scene. I'm getting those two. I think it's because we've got the new studio set up. I don't know if you notice it's a little bit different than normal. Um, we've been rearranging the whole week. So um, what would you use? The problem with using something like a laser is that it, it once you let it go, it's gone, right? 
same as a normal bullet. But the thing is, a normal kinetic mass bullet could have a little rocket engine in or a piece of guidance that lets it move. Um, and so in that regard, the laser is your best for really close, really rapid response stuff because you can pump that through there at the speed of light. For things that are further away, to where the object might have enough delta V to be able to jink around, then it becomes a bit of a different um, issue. You might want something that actually has homing capacity and ability to change its trajectory. I'll give you an example. Uh, we talked about this more in Space Warfare. If you're not catching little bits, go to that video. But when you are coming towards something and, and at space level distances where the speed of light is actually going to take a second or you know, at least a few milliseconds to reach you, um, your speech, you cannot react to that. You can't see if someone's pointing a laser at you and dodge. But you can preemptively react to it by jinking a little bit to the side, left or right. And when you're in space, a little bit of delta V, if you suddenly move one meter to the second to the right, you know, a second later you are a meter to the right. When you have those unpredictable velocities, they're going to get missed a lot more. And those only exaggerate at greater distances, which is why things like lasers you can keep on target uh, are no good beyond a certain range that's probably... Probably anything bigger than cislunar space would not be good for anything intelligent. You might still use it for taking out asteroid clumps, but not a spaceship, but that was a warship. And they could have moved aside in advance, and so when your when your object gets there, it can react and move too, whereas, or do it as of the way, while the laser is just going to miss. So it would depend on the range of the ships and the amount of thrust they had to move around, but it's not necessarily a thrust issue, because let's say I have two pods that are connected by a tether or a beam. Uh, they don't have to expend any rocket fuel on their way to me, these two payload missiles, to go like this, back and forth, up and down, spin around. They can do that basically fuel-free. And so that's one of those ways you can kind of cheat around that and get avoid getting hit by lasers. But not if you're too close. So lasers for close and further away, missiles or other guided systems, where that breaking point is, it can be hard to say. So we have a question here from Christian Corello. And thank you for your super chat. If you can combine two or more drives for a spaceship, which would you pick and how would you arrange them? I considered combining solar sails with Orion drives, but learned from Quora that wouldn't work. I don't know why that wouldn't work. Um, so what you would normally do with something like an Orion drive uh, is use it to slow down. Um, because if you, if you do not have a way to slow down your destination, you're going to be in trouble. You can also magnetically slow down too, but... The combination that would probably work best that's just known technology would be a mixture of laser sail, uh, which might be mag you might be microwaves as opposed to lasers, but same difference. Laser sail and um, maybe a mag sail to slow down with, and an Orion drive to provide some of your additional oomph. My optimal way for doing that for combining two drives would probably be the laser sail to get you going. Uh, than a nuclear reactor to keep you alive while you're going. Obviously, fusion would be nicer than fission uh, if you've got it. And then I would have a big pod on the front of the ship that has nothing but a compacted seal in it, basically my own shielding for hours to go through interstellar space. And it has all of my extra nukes uh, and all of my extra sail. And when we're approaching the next star that we're going to get to, it pops free, pushes us back a little and itself forward a little bit, and accelerates in towards that star a little bit. And then spreads its sail, slows down, and starts that daisy chain laser sail thing we've talked about before, where whichever sail reaches the sun first, being slowed down as a solar sail, uses all that energy it's collecting to hit the one behind it to slow it down, which does it in turn to you something that's a fixed beaming station at that location. That would be hard to coordinate, but uh, it should be something that would theoretically be doable. So, um, as with a lot of these things, it depends on what the engineer is going to let you do, and that's a hard one to test, but. Um, you could do that by, say, launching them in from Pluto or something like that um, at our own sun, as opposed to having to wait to get Alpha Centauri to see if it works. And that would be the best one, unless you got a really good Bucid Ramjet setup that actually lets you slow down at least that way, which might be better. The next question is from Samuel Tweedle. Thoughts on cold welding, also known as vacuum welding? Um, not too many. Uh, I'm like the only guy in my family who doesn't know how to weld, and all my uncles and cousins weld regularly. So I'm actually not that big of a, uh, not that knowledgeable how they do welding in space. Um, I would say in a lot of these cases, you might actually see a lot of the welding going on while it's actually pressurized. You might see in a lot of cases where what they do is put some kind of seal over top of it as they're working, maybe even just a suction cup over the spot being welded just so that there's a little bit more normality going in and that might give you additional options on how to weld. Most of the time you're going to be welding in space on space habitat, you're doing it in a pressurized setup. So 
Um, I don't know that you'd always necessarily be wanting to do vacuum welding that way, but beyond that, I'm afraid I can't tell you too much. Our channel regular, Albert Jackinson, welcome back. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Isaac and Sarah. It's good oh, to be back. Good to see you too. Hope you enjoyed your trip. With a total solar eclipse coming up, what astronomical phenomena might people be able to view once we expand outwards into the solar system? Um, hmm. Let me think. Probably one of the neatest things to do is going to be any time you can actually see an eclipse on the sun um, from another planet. And you can do that at like the uh, the L2 point of any planet. You should be able to get your eclipses there. Um, but a lot of them do have fairly distant ranges. So they might not fully eclipse it. But you should be able to, especially with the spaceship, spend protracted periods of times in a planet's total shadow. Um, the problem is that things like Mercury and Venus uh, are smaller than Earth and a lot closer to the sun. Whereas the L2 point really is not, so I don't know if they'd really be completely in shadow the way the other, uh, the James Webb Telescope, for instance, is. Um, you could do that with Saturn or Venus, for sure. I think that you'd have a lot of really interesting conjunctions on the planets that, uh, the, sorry, the moons out around the bigger planets, too. But in terms of really neat astronomical phenomena, the biggest one, and it's one that Arthur C. Clarke talked about before we even got up in space, is that you see way more stars. You know, it's it's... Uh, kind of a mistake to think about it is stars don't twinkle in space because they're very vivid and they're very single dots of light. There's no atmosphere getting in the way. They won't twinkle, but there'll be thousands and thousands more of them. Um, and they'll be always there. Whereas the sun is always in the other direction shining. There is no nighttime in space unless you're behind a planet. The sun is always at full noon glare. So there'll be a very different way of looking at the world. And one of those things to look for when we do get the solar eclipse, which will be passing over this house uh, in April, is that... Um, we'll be in the total zone. Yeah, we're to total, total zone for that. It's perfect. And um, I'm probably going to throw a party that day. Um, but uh, is the way watch the way that the light goes down. Because you're, you're used to twilight levels of light, and you'll get those, but they won't be the normal twilight colors. It'll be the same vivid daytime noon colors, but toned down, whereas you kind of get used to always seeing everything in glare. So it, it is a very different experience that everything just feels a little bit strange after a solar eclipse. I think that would be the way it is on a lot of different planets too, because it will be normal in some ways, but all the more strange because of how it's different. All right, so Scooter GSP says, you frequently mention hydroponics, playing a large role in the future. Mm -hmm. But multiple sources have said that hydroponically grown vegetables taste terrible. How can this issue be resolved? Um, I mean, that's a tricky one. It makes me think of artificial meat. Then they first growing artificial meat. They, the biggest problem they found was that people didn't like it. Then they put blood on it. And then it's like, oh, it tastes great now. It's, it's you know, I love this stuff. That, that was what was missing was blood. So, uh, But for hydroponics, I, I grew up on hothouse tomatoes. That's a pretty common thing. My grandfather also had a greenhouse um attached to our house um your grandfather did it it's a really yes. big one yeah so and um that's a, a, i, I kind of got used to uh those weren't hydroponic ones in those cases though um i don't know i don't know what would be missing from the particular i would think that might be something like lettuce bricks. or yeah the sugar bricks so oh, yeah. you, your sunlight is what creates the sweetness yeah. flavor mm -hmm. and certain micronutrients are what causes them to be tasty or not tasty so it probably depends on what your mix in the water is and whether or not you have a good light combination to actually get some sweetness into the vegetable that's probably very true for anyone who didn't know my wife is uh, a farmer by trade and father and grandfather way agricultural scientist and a horticultural scientist so it's, it's kind of one of those areas she knows way more about than i do <laughs> sorry <laughs> jumping in all right <laughs> do you have anything else to add on that nope. <laughs> not provided thank you for your super chat I don't mean to bother you too much, but I wanted to follow up on if you can do an episode on the Pans-Cosmorio hypothesis. Yes. <laughs> or at least a very short explanation on this stream and ask the audience for so, feedback. <laughs> it's funny you should ask that. Wait till the intermission, but then after the uh, intermission, um, wait until early January. It should be actually up there on one of the slides that would run up there because I decided after doing the, I think it was the intermission for this month, um, that I needed to discuss it even more. So it has an episode in January. Uh, so. Okay, wonderful. So uh, next coming question. right up. Yeah. Nilano, if you did a video on life in 23, 23, 23 AD, how would that differ from life in 23, 23? 
Uh, well, yeah, 2323, 2380 would be the year 2,233,000. Wait, is I got that right? Um, no, 200,000, Okay. So in the year 200,000, we did one. That's, um, that's when the uh, episode, um, Intergalactic Colonization. The, it's the last one for the Unity, uh, for that series and as a life in a space colonist. They are the, the system we call the Tominus system around some brown dwarf or very large Jovian and they're rebuilding a fleet to go to Andromeda. Uh, that that was the life in the 2323-2323 AD. Uh, we mostly discussed how they're planning to colonize that one if they stopped like 30,000 times or some insane number. 30,000 light years out and they've stopped at and founded thousands of colonies along the way. So that is the 2323-2380 one. Um, and I'd say if you want the 6 million year one that go read House of Suns by Alistair Reynolds. That's a uh, kind of unintentional uh I, I i sometimes think of that series as being the um fan in, fan canon um lead up to that story series so um this is one of my favorite sci-fi novels but uh, that would be life in 2023 2380 colonization adam rat says what sci-fi trope do you feel is underrepresented underrepresented uh, i can tell you some ones that are overrepresented um <laughs> the the one planet of the hats type thing where you go to some you know planet or some species of alien and they're all very much the same like they're all Klingon warriors or they're all uh, very logical scientisty Vulcans and you wonder who who actually mops the floors or you know who actually does like I think one episode of DS Nine they had a Klingon lawyer. So you're just, saying the underrepresented combat. populations are yeah. uh, those who actually do normal work? Yeah, on the, you know, in those cases anyway, yes. <laughs> and uh, so that's the plan that has the same one for the um, case we have a, like one city on an entire planet and it's all the same terrain. So you go visit some planet and as far as you might be concerned, it's just that one little town or settlement and everything else is empty. Um, mm. In terms of ones I'd love to see more of um, that I think it never really gets old is any real discussion of, of the actual civilizations day-to-day -day operations um which unfortunately a lot of times are an author track for what particular ideology they happen to love or hate that they put in there but um those explorations tend to be a lot more fun for me so exploring the actual culture of that civilization and its history building up that world building saying that's the thing i tend to feel really gets missed there i don't know what trope that would fall under though because the problem is i don't know if there is an underrepresented uh, trope by definition since they're usually that's they always the cliche things people use a lot and sci-fi has got pretty much all of them except for the ones that are cliches in another genre like even was it the uh the farm boy with a sword that's very popular and uh all the way back to king Arthur days in fantasy you've already got that in star wars with the lightsaber or luke skywalker so no underrepresented tropes come to mind <laughs> the next question is from melody guzzin could we use dense materials found in asteroid 33 polyhemia for grav plating um, Did I get that mouthful I out probably, for you? I'm not sure what it quite was, the word there. Asteroid 33 polyhemia for grav plating. Can you use dense materials? Um, you, okay, well, I don't recall hearing anything specific about that asteroid that would have any, any like, massive stockpiles of osmium in it, for instance. That's the densest material I can think of up to my head. Uh, there probably are some transuranics that are even dense, or I'm, I'm not a chemist, so they might know it to tell you better. But even then, you even if you're making a planet completely out of osmium, I think it still has to be several hundred kilometers across at least to actually present Earth-like gravity. Um, and Earth is the densest uh, planet. Actually, it's the densest object in the solar system that we know of. Um, yeah, other than some steel ball we might have hung in space. That was a solid steel ball. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and it actually might be. It's one of my list of lesser filters that Earth's uh, density might be pertinent to its uh, its hospitality to us. But um, habitability, so that was what I was looking for. Hospitality too, though. Um, the only way you're going to get good gravity on an asteroid under known science is with artificial black holes. Um, and I think it would be really cool to find out that we could generate it elsewise. Like, unlike FTL, I don't rule artificial gravity out as one of those things is impossible. If you can take a photon and, and use it to create uh, any of the other transfer bosons, you should be able to do a graviton too, so... You might have some kind of weird system. I think what I played around with one time just for sci-fi music was a neutrino gravitic system, something that could absorb neutrinos coming off a star and generate gravity uh, in the opposite direction. It was just a hand wave to allow space habitats that were Dyson swarmy looking. But uh, you might have fix, you know, things like that. You should be able to generate gravitons somehow without actually using mass. 
Um, so that does you know, violate any known principles that I'm aware of. But other than that, mass and black holes or spin and uh, spin gravity. Feel flying. Isaac, I'm sure you've read Dune. Oh, yes. Do you think you'll cover their technology and culture in an episode sometime in the future? It's because I did all the ones on, on, on 40K. No, it is actually kind of tempting. I, I thought about doing a couple quick specials when the next Dune movie came out. Um, to just kind of put something out quickly on it. But um, it would be tempting. I, I say that, uh, D- was it Dune, Ender's Game, and uh, Foundation by Isaac Asimov usually win most of the polls, at least they did in the early knots and 90s. For best sci-fi series effort, it was always those three at the top, and I always give them great examples of really good sci-fi that was very good hard science fiction that was based on some really bad science in some places. Um, and I'd say for Edward's game was the idea that you really could coordinate battles with kids over many light years, but for Foundation, it was always the idea that psychohistory could work, which you can't. And for Dune, it was the idea that a high-tech civilization with um, anti-gravity and cheap FTL would ever have a desert planet uh, as a problem, since Ice is the most common substance after like hydrogen helium. <laughs> so uh, you just go to the outer source, any, any place outer source, which probably have tons of water, and if not, truck it in. You see the size of those highlighters in there. Um, but it's a fantastic book series. Um, I liked all the original books by, by Frank Hobart, though they can get a little bit weird uh, in like book five or book six in some places, or even book three. Um, but uh, um, some of the ones by his son and Kevin J. Anderson are good too, but it kind of varies. They, they don't feel quite the same feel to them. You know, they're, they're not the same authors. But um, I would definitely recommend it to people. I think if I did cover it, though, I would probably stick just the original six books. So, so Ten Rays Tube. Hey Isaac, what is the state of art in the of the art of nuclear fuel recycling, and what are the hurdles right now? in slowing that development here in the United States. Um, <clears throat> Maybe adjust uh, well, so, so I would say the first place is, the, to the best of my knowledge, the people doing the best recycling usually was France. They were the ones doing the best with their actual spent stuff, and, and there was laser separation, a few other methods going on. I usually am more interested in producing additional nuclear fuel with breeder reactors than I am about recycling old fuel. Um, in terms of that being a, a hindrance, it really isn't. You could take all those spent fuel rods and throw them into one single small building. Um, that's not the if issue there. It's it's the lighter waste. Like right down for me, Perry Nuclear Power Plant. Um, it's I spend you know in the sky my whole life. They call it the cloud factory locally. Uh, they start store their stuff in one of the they have a second reactor. They have a tornado. They put all of it down there, but. Um, it's all those spent suits and things like that, all that lightly irradiated material that needs like a century to reach you know, appropriate levels mm-hmm. that takes up all the space. Um, and I don't know that that's ever gonna be an easy thing to, to replace. For fuel recycling, it's just about trying to get the most money out of it you can, and uranium is actually really cheap, so I'm not sure that's the thing holding back the industry. I, I, there are probably people who will very loudly disagree with that. Um, you can check the comments, I'm sure they'll pop up shortly, but I would say that for fuel recycling, it's better than it's been, but it's not to me the main thing holding back the industry, um, except maybe from a perception standpoint of long term storage. I just realized that there was a third question. Oh, was there? Okay. How might nuclear rockets work now with current technology? Uh, so you're up, so the nuclear option for full discussion, but uh, you've got clean nuclear reactors where you're just taking the you know the nuclear fuel uh, and and running it as a normal reactor to power uh, something like an ion drive or a nuclear flash bulb or um, technically even a photon rocket though that'd be really inefficient. Um, you would heat up your ionized fuel or just even just thermally heat up hydrogen and spit out the back very quickly. Uh, that'd be your nuclear thermal rockets. Um, you have an, options for like open cycle ones where you could actually produce enough thrust to get yourself off a planet, but I think that actually turning that one on, since that would be spitting radioactive waste out the back as opposed to a closed loop one, would probably not make you ever welcome on that planet again. So, but they're really quite safe in that regard. It's just I tend to think that you, you can never get around that you have a lot of uranium sitting on board a spaceship as it's going through the atmosphere if it's being launched, um, and that because of the nature of those rods, they're very dense, they, they go right through almost anything, they're not going to fall apart if the thing blows up. They're going to go land in big chunks, which makes them easy to recover mostly, um, and but also very radioactive, and I don't think people don't really be comfortable with a nuclear rocket in the atmosphere. So I always think of nuclear-powered spaceships as something where we take the fuel up carefully, 
in large chunks, and then the ships that are actually running it are doing it for you know runs between orbital space, like geostationary orbit up to the to Mars or the Moon, not back and forth to Earth. So the next question makes me laugh because do you remember when you first asked me to look at maybe editing some of your um, scripts? Mm-hmm. And I was listening to the audio clip, and I presented you with a list of like five different things that you said repeatedly. The first rule of warfare, the oh, first yes. rule of warfare, the first rule <laughs> of warfare. And I said, you know, primordial numbers should have, or ordinal numbers should have, first, second, second third. third. And it's so a the, qu- gag. The, the question from Perfernquist is, what is the best first rule of warfare in all of your first rules, and what would be the second? Well, now, I can only... answer the second. <laughs> Go ahead. The second is, always have a dry pair of socks. This is true. After years of trying to figure out what if I'd ever heard of a second rule from people asking me, I did actually remember one time a sergeant told me the second thing, you know, the second most important thing is to always have a dry pair of socks. And then that was actually dry pair of socks or underwear on a little Ziploc bag. I highly recommend keeping one in your, your backpack or your trunk of your car. Uh, in terms of the first rules of warfare, there's only the one, and uh, it's it's always the best one. I don't think I have a particular favorite of the, of the larger category of them, though. I'd say maybe the, uh, um, let's say... Uh, don't pick on any. You know, don't pick on anyone your own size or smaller. Uh, always pick on someone smaller than you. That's probably my favorite one. So, <laughs> only fight fights you can win. <laughs> Zerp twerp. Uh, thank you for your super chat. Are you going to be attending a public event for the 2024 total solar eclipse? And will there be an opportunity for all of us fans to meet up? Uh, possibly. I know my own motto down south of me, which is also in the zone, uh, was doing an event for that and asked me to come or speak, but that's very tenor. They're talking to a lot of other folks from the area, too. We do have NASA Glenn right up the road for them, too, so there's probably someone in heliophysics who would do a better job talking about the event than me. Um, but if I go to that one, that would be where it would be at. We can stay, and you can look up that event as it goes, but barring that, otherwise I'll be sitting here on my pal, you know, Patty out back and enjoy it that way. One of the two. <laughs> Should be an exciting yeah. day. All right. Uh, we fit in one more here before the break. So, yeah. Abjit. Hey, Isaac. How likely do you think that something like the... Uh, hold on. I think I, I may mis- be misreading this one. We'll come back to that. Gerton Isk. Thank you for your super chat. From the Netherlands here. Hi, Arthur. I'm a primary school teacher. Do you have any good sci-fi series I could recommend to my 10-year-old kids? I'm looking for something where the science is actually realistic. Hmm. Um, I'm kind of mentally going through right now with the disclaimers of what, what might not be acceptable for a 10-year-old. I was entranced with Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when I was 10. It was the big one for me. I don't know that that's say all the material there was optimal for a 10-year-old, though. Um, and that's the same thing I'd say you could probably get away with like 2001 by Arthur C. Clarke or the Foundation novels. Um, those are pretty solid for a 10 year old, though. I'm trying to think of something that's uh, like actually a young adult one. Um, a lot of the ones come to mind like Brandon Sanderson, and those tend to be more aimed at a fancy audience, though. That he does have a lot of crossover. Oh, there's gonna be a bunch of people I'm forgetting about that I, I don't remember them five seconds after we come back from the break, so I will see if I remember them during the break. <laughs> Next question? Or was that the last one here? Okay, we will see you guys in about three minutes. While we are on break, feel free to give some more questions to the moderators for part two. But one common question that gets brought up in discussion of space sediments are where are the stars nearest us besides Alpha Centauri that we might find planets around that we could terraform? As channel regulars know, I'm not a big on the idea that we need to limit ourselves to yellow suns like our own or even just the neighboring ranges of cooler K-type orange dwarfs or the brighter F-types, but to discuss them briefly, there is only one F-type star within 20 light years of us, Procyon. Altair and Cirrus, which are A-type stars, brighter even than F, would not be considered good candidates normally. Nothing bigger than them is inside 20 light years. In our upcoming Fermi Paradox Compendium episode, we will be discussing both percolation and aurora theories which generally focus on the idea that we colonize only fairly hospitable planets around yellow suns, and that these in turn grow up and colonize their own neighbors, further from Earth. And I thought I'd take a moment to explain why this traditional, somewhat space opera approach presents a slightly bleaker scenario for the Fermi Paradox than it should. 
And again, I'm obviously pretty vocal that I think colonization won't hinge much on stellar types or planets available, but if we're assuming it did, then within 20 light years the pickings are scarce, and this represents a century of travel for even the most optimistic speed an Orion Drive would achieve. Those G-type stars are highest KR incidentally by name and distance in light years, Alpha Centauri A, 4.37 light years, Tau Ceti, 11.9 light years, Sigma Draconis, 18.8 light years, Eta Cassiope, 19.4 light years, Epsilon Iodani, 19.8 light years, and Delta Pavonis, 19.9 light years. Except for Alpha Centauri A, which roughly matches our Sun, those are all cooler and dimmer, and indeed Alpha Centauri B, which is on the brighter side of the K-type, is closer to them than our Sun is, as would be Sigma Draconis. So two big quick notes, you probably noticed most of those are about 19 light years away. That's semi-coincidental but space is 3D so the population of a given star is going to sharply rise with distance, but we often use parsecs in astronomy and for instance 5 parsecs is 16.3 light years, and if you asked how many plausible stars for colonization within 5 parsecs, you just get Alpha Centauri, Procyon, and Tau Ceti and those first two are binaries which is not favorable for finding habitable zone planets, particularly Procyon, which is an older star seven times brighter than our Sun, orbited very essentially by its white dwarf companion out about where Neptune or Pluto would be, so not a good candidate for life. Numbers can be a bit misleading in astronomy for this purpose, as for instance, if you have a spaceship that can go twice as far as Earth than a previous model, on average that upgraded ship with double that range has 2 cubed or 8 times as many stars to choose from, triple that range and has 3 cubed or 27 times the stars, quadruple, and 4 cubed or 64 times the stars, and if you can go 10 times as far, 1000 times the stars. It is also important to remember that our Sun is not particularly representative of how stars are spread out. Even discarding dense star formations full of giants, finding a yellow Sun with another yellow Sun within a light year is not terribly rare. Why this matters is because it is common in Fermi Paradox discussions to point to only a few stars nearby, acknowledge that a century of travel is a real effort to set up a colony, especially given that they have to settle a barren rock at the end of that marathon, not a paradise planet waiting for them to land, and just reason that if you only got a few candidates and some might not be viable, and each of those candidates would only have a couple more further from them that they could reach once they grew up and in turn colonized themselves, that efforts to colonize the galaxy might peter out very quickly. And again, that is entirely possible, but I feel this one is a lot like Drake's equation. We don't have a very good idea what numbers need to be pumped into it to match reality, and here, if we assume you can only go 5 parsecs and only colonize G-type stars, you've got two candidates, one binary, each with just one or two near them besides us too. Alternatively, I will usually include all the stars, regardless of classification, even brown dwarfs, and assume colonization is almost always a success if a ship arrives, and assume a wider range, so I don't get two, I get several thousand each within colonization range of several thousand themselves with wide overlap, and I only assume about double the distance of colony ship range. Needless to say, this provides a very different view of colonizing space, and one which I personally think is better supported, but time will tell. And speaking of time, time to get back to the live stream for more of your questions. Before I figured out what was making the blinky on the screen, and unfortunately it's the computer right behind me. Not that about that. <laughs> I see a whole entire computer. <laughs> yeah. It's like the it's like three of them over there, so if you go and see them, there's, there's no like... ones with the show, there's three of them next to each other. They're all liquid cold, but they're all blinky. Um, <laughs> anyway, so coming back on that one, the uh, now that we know more about the Pan-Cosmorio theory, um, that's only very briefly touching on kind of some of the concepts of it. We did end up, as you notice, that was kind of a longer break for an intermission. We did end up expanding that into an entire episode for January. Um Young adult science fiction, and I feel guilty for not even thinking to mention this before, Robert Heinlein's young adult series, the Scribner series, the last book of which is either Have Spacesuit Will Travel from last month, oh, yeah, that's um, or Starship Troopers. The book he wrote right after that, Starship Troopers, which is his biggest classic, is kind of seen as either the first book after that series, kind of graduating book of it, or the last book of the series, with Have Spacesuit Will Travel being the one right before that in the ending. There was like 12 or 13 of them, they're great. And so, yes, I'd recommend Robert Heinlein's uh, Young Adult Squ- Series of Scribble. 
Well, the nice thing about longer breaks, more candy corn. <laughs> and Isaac doesn't like it, so I can eat it all. No, I'm and, not a candy corn fan. I don't. <laughs> um, I'm breaking my general rules about corn syrup just for candy corn in fall season. <laughs> all right. The question that we have is Abjit. Hey, Isaac, how likely do you think that something like the Butilarian... Yes. The Dunes Lutarian Jihad is likely in real life, considering people are getting wearier of AI by the day. Love the channel and everything you do. So I think the Balearian Jihad from Dune uh, doesn't show up in the movies. It's kind of a leftover event. That, that actually is the, I was going to say, the fourth series that uh, Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Hobart wrote after after Frank Hobart's death. I think it was the second one. They did uh, three books, the House Atreides, Halcon, and Carino books. And then they did the Balearian Jihad ones. And I actually kind of like those, but... The thing is, we get a description of them in the books. Then we get a description of them in the Dune Encyclopedia that would have been put together while Frank Holt was still alive. And then you get the one from those series. Um, and it's about 10,000 years before the Dune novels happened. And it's where they smash up all the robots and free humanity from those enslaving them. And it was either humans who controlled the robots who enslaved the rest of humanity, kind of that, like, were the, you know, people who owned all the robots used them to enslave everybody else scenario. In others, the robots are actually the ones running the show, and that's the version that was done by his son and, and Kevin J. Anderson. And um, it kind of depends on which one of those we're talking about, how you would handle that, and how likely I think it is. Uh, I can definitely see scenarios where you would have the people who control the robots uh, using those to oppress other people in the, in the Frank Corbett original version. I have a little bit more difficulty imagining the scenario that's in the other book series where you basically have a bunch of cyborgs uh, hijack the AI that is peacefully running the system and it turns sentient and enslaves they, they used to enslave humanity and then it enslaves them um, but that's kind of the uh, you let Pandora's box open and now the dragons come and bitch up either one of them you could happen but uh, I think that I think that I would not expect that to be something that happened to all of humanity in the same spot for either case scenario because I don't see there ever being a kind of a unified humanity to have just one AI that somebody could hack or take over. So you might have that in one country where that happened or on one planet, uh, but probably not the entirety of humanity at once. That's kind of the problem with the technological singularities. It's really only a danger why you only have one planet and why you uh, might have it pop out very quickly is otherwise you always have places that didn't have it, but have the same technology that could you know, reciprocate if, if something got out of control. So I would say I think both scenarios are very plausible, um, but probably not in a totality of humanity kind of way unless they happen in the next 50 years. So we have a super chat. Don't from... worry about it. It won't happen until your lifetime. <laughs> we have a super chat. Uh, the gentleman mm -hmm. says, I have autism and I mm -hmm. often like to retreat to the woods to read. I'm currently reading The Moat in God's Eye. Great Thanks book. for suggesting that book. Yeah. No, I would say um, Larry Niven and Jerry Pinnell are both fantastic, uh, fantastic fantastic authors. Jerry Pinnell passed away, though, um, but just fantastic. And that book, uh, A Moat in God's Eye, is, or was it The Moat in God's Eye? Either way, The Moat in God's Eye is a great book. Read that book. It's great. It's a sequel written many years later. The Gripping Hand is also very good. And then uh, it's set in Jerry Pornell's um, Codinium series one, which is kind of a classic military sci-fi setting. So if, if you do like those, it's, it's definitely got a theme very similar to uh, like David Webb was on or the Battletech Mac Warrior uh, setting. So a good one for reading if you, if you like that type of sci-fi, which I do. Owen Shaw says, mm -hmm. if you are alive 10,000 years from now, where do you think you might be living? Ideally, I'd still be here on my farm. I, I kind of like the idea of still being here. What, you like the new office? I do. I really Well, it's the same office. We just rearranged it. We painted the walls, by the way. So for those of you who have seen the live stream before, this is normally the area that Sarah's sitting at, and it's been redone as my office. And I'm not going to show you on the camera the other one, because <laughs> one, I might knock the camera over, and two, it's still in, in movement. So there's like a vacuum cleaner or a step ladder off that way. <laughs> so, a hammer and a few other yeah. you know, minor yeah. details. <laughs> but, Yes. Nolan Kennedy, thank you for your super chat. Mm -hmm. If timelines could converge or branch moving forward, and if we traveled time through backwards, couldn't we end up in different timelines? Could that be a way for explaining why reversed entropy doesn't make sense? Could you give that to me one more time? If timelines can converge or branch moving forward, mm -hmm. yeah. if we traveled through time through backwards, couldn't we end up in different timelines? Yeah. Um, 
Could that be a way for explaining why reversed entropy doesn't make sense? So there, there's a number of, well, on that last one, that's a lot more of a theoretical question that's going to be a little harder to answer because it depends on which cosmology you're working with. Um, and that's my copy cup that's on the screen. I was trying to figure out what the white thing was. <laughs> uh, so you have the scenarios where the, the universe just keeps branching like a tree. And that's, that is one possibility, but you'll hear people say, oh, no, that's not what we mean. Uh, that is one of the options, is everything just keeps branching off. But people say, well, what about energy conservation? Where are those universes getting all the extra energy from? Um, and uh, the answer that someone would say is, well, they, are, they already exist. It's just that you have every possible state of matter uh, that the universe could have is already out there, uh, including the one where every last atom is in some way making up a cheeseburger. Um, because there is a possibility, however finitely tiny that is, it's still possible. And what you're doing is kind of working your way through the various states the universe can be in, and your personal timeline goes that way. Um, and so you're not really moving forward or backward in time, except in the sense that the universe has a certain size. And that would be your error of time in that kind of context is um, how old the universe was. You always have to take a step forward in time to get to it. Now, if you run backward in time through that, potentially too. But the thing is, for any one of those given states, you would have multiple different timelines backwards too, not just forward. So you got the branching timelines forward, you also have them going backward too. There's so many of these theories, and I I know I tend to beat up on multiverse theory and many worlds. It's not because I think they're bad theories per se, it's just that there's this much evidence that this much that they actually are true. And uh, there's this much evidence they're false too. But uh, it's it's just you can really get in the weeds on which one of them says what and what the implications are philosophically, metaphysically, and in terms of what the actual function of time or entropy are on those. And so, yes, um, Michael Crichton's Time Machine book, I'm trying to remember what it's called, Time Something, but uh, I think they actually did a movie on it. It was completely different, though. Uh, as is often the case, Michael Crichton books, they very rarely have anything to do with the movie they made for them. Um, but the one they have there, they actually are doing that. They hop to an alternate universe where basically that's how they did their time travel is they're going to a universe where it's the same one, basically the same as ours, but a little bit younger. So they're just moving sideways. So imagine that uh, Earth formed 500 years later, but everything else would be completely the same. And you step into that universe and you're basically in whatever that would be, 1523 AD, which would be... Uh, had to be the eighth, so <laughs> that different results, and that would be the way you do that time travel there. For instance, there's different theories for each different cosmology, though. Christian Carello has a super chat. I was told that an Orion drive would tear a solar sail apart, and a way to decelerate it is by turning it around using RCS thrusters and/or reactor wheels. Okay. What do you think? And doing a deceleration burn. So, do you agree? Um. It would walk. Uh, okay, so <laughs> the Orion Drive is usually assumed to be blowing. Like, usually the pusher plate on the back of one of those is thought to be made of uranium, right? So those are very dense little particles, and if you're or if you're blowing off a um, hydrogen bomb behind you to push on a big sail, um, which you can do too, that that sail needs to be fairly sturdy because it is trying to absorb a nuclear bomb in as small a blast as possible, um, and there's going to be a lot of radiation in there, but it's also going to be a lot of fragments of you know uranium or plutonium, which is about as uh, almost penetrating as you can get. They, they're very dense. Uh, they're perfect for making bullets out to rip things apart. So they tend to be rough on sails, which is why I tend to think about making the pusher plate out of it. Um, but uh, you can still do it that way. The idea would usually be not that you're using the sail for that, but that you're retracting it afterwards behind that. So imagine I have my big uranium plate right here, and then you know the bombs go off over here. But then over here, we have the packaging place where I'm going to put the sail afterwards. So. Before I turn my Orion drive on, I'm expanding a big graphene or aluminum foil sail out. I'm going to hit that with a laser. And then when we're up to the best speed that that laser can give us, we're going to suck that sail in, wind it up, recycle bits of it as needed or whatever, and store it behind that pusher plate so that it's still helping us get some radiation shielding. Or we could put it in the front of the ship too, for that matter, for radiation shielding. But it's not actually being hit by the fragments. Then you turn the Orion drive on and start blowing things up behind it. And that just gives you a little extra radiation shielding or redundancy with your sail. No matter what you do, if you're doing a 40-year voyage with a thin sail like that, you're probably going to bring that in, melt it down, and, and recycle it and put it back out again. Maybe not, but that seems like the best option. It doesn't matter if it's all pucked like cheesecloth, though, because it's, it's in space. It's a vacuum space. So it, does, it can have lots of holes. That's fine. But it's still easier to deploy it and match if it's not in a horrible shape. Christoph Zis 
Jessica. I'm sorry if that's mangling your name. If you had excess energy, can you get rid of spent radioactive fuel by splitting it until it's just protons and neutrons that will decay into protons anyway? Uh, no, because uh, once you're down the area about nickel and ion, uh, the uh, 56 to 60 nucleons area, um, you are not you're not getting any cut profitable fission at that point. You, you can still cut something in half, right? Same as you can also fuse things that are bigger than ions. Say, well, you can't fuse above ions. Well, you can fuse things above ions. You just have to put more energy in than, than it takes. That's why you want to get them out of very energetic events that are sucking up a lot of energy to make it. There's no energy released by the, by the fusion of things heavier than that. Um, they are net subtract or same for fission below that stage as you're usually going to lose energy in the process. Uh, you can still have decays beneath that, like potassium decay. That's a beta decay that can still give off net energy, but uh, that's not changing that nucleus. Um, sorry, that's not uh, splitting that nucleus. Um, so it's not fission. Um, you could break things down to the proton level, but it's going to cost you energy, not give you energy. And that's that's one of those things where if you could change the laws of physics or change a physical constant, you might be able to change things like that around, but then you probably have much better ways to generate power at that point than by fissional fusion. Maybe. El Augusta says, Isaac, what do you think the upper limit is on super strength enhancements on a human without making them look inhuman or conspicuous? Um, hmm. Well, it kind of depends on what you're, what you're using as the actual fake muscle. I, I could mention Battletech earlier. There they had a Myanmar muscle or something. I can't remember what it's called, but it was kind of an early idea of using something other than a piston, something more like a muscle-based fiber. Um, there, there, you should be able to pull off anything you do with like a piston though inside, like if you're always just one gigantic piston, you should be able to match that with something a little bit more elaborate, like a muscle fiber, but uh, you you should be able to set somebody up so they would be able to lift a car over their head. Um, I don't think you get them up to like the battle tank level, but uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so Captain America strength, yes. Um, while still looking human, Spider-Man strength or Thor strength, maybe not so much, but um, that would be one of those things I'd have to refer that to an engineer who actually works with the hydraulics, because that would be my default for like the, the baseline of where you're hitting, that would be the kind of standard candle. Uh, you might be able to do things that were better than that, uh, you might not be able to get to that level, but that would give you the number, and I honestly do not know what that is, but it should be, it should at least be in the low tons, so... Now, mind you, you need to have that in your spine, too. <laughs> so, you gotta do the whole reconfiguration at that point. Floor Horbeck says, could gravity have emerged one dimension at a time, and then the third dimension is inflation from a zero dimension that started without levels of degrees of freedom at zero degrees Kelvin? Give me that one again. <laughs> <laughs> could gravity have emerged one dimension at a time, then the third dimension, inflation, from a zero dimension that started without levels of degrees of freedom at zero degrees Kelvin. And then stopped before did it, because remember when we talk about string theory, the idea is there are still more physical dimensions past those three plus time, um, and uh, that they just didn't expand, they didn't inflate. Um, you know, that inflationary epoch, and again, that's not proven either. I, I, I kind of emphasize that. I land on the yes, that probably did happen thing because it almost has to have to, to make sense, but there's not like exactly experimental evidence of that either. Um, we could just have really bad models. <laughs> so, um, there's we really can't see anything before 400,000 years after the Big Bang uh, because everything was just blanketed in that surface of last scattering you talk about on the show, and that was basically the surface of the sun. Um, almost all of your helium uh, dates to that that first couple of minutes too, um, where it was denser than your typical supernova blast. Um, <coughs> let's see. It means that the sun's core doesn't really matter for something like that because sun's cores, they fuse hydrogen over like a billions of years, so um, you gotta be really ultra dense to try to turn hydrogen <coughs> together. And, um, oh, I'm trying to think how to answer that question because I, I, I don't, you're going to have to ask, that would be like a Sean Carroll question. I, I'm not going to be able to answer that one for you. Uh, maybe Paul Sutter. Um, for that, yeah, no. I don't see how it could have done it one at a time like that, but it is possible that, um, yeah, it's an interesting idea. I'll leave it at that. I can't, I can't usefully opine on it. Uh, my wife is coughing at the moment, so I'll ask the next question. Is it? Uh, Rob Hawk asks, what is the best sci-fi novel where Earth is invaded by competing alien ecology? 
Cool. Um, there was one, I don't think it was a novel, but it was, it was Invasion something, although it's, it's a BBC production. Um, same for Threshold, which I'll, I'll go to too. I'm trying to remember it was called, maybe Invasion Earth, but uh, there there we do actually have alien life forms popping up on the Earth. That was a interesting little miniseries. Then there's uh, Threshold, that would be another one. Um, brief TV show that uh, only lasted one season and had Brent Spiner at Commando Data from, from Star Trek and um, Peter Dinklage uh, from Game of Thrones. But they were the two of the scientists on there, and they were a great combination. Ironically, they didn't have top billing because they weren't as well known at that time. Um, but uh, So they, they, were, they were part of the main team. It was a great series. But there they have an alien tesseract that shows up and, and hybrids people. So... Um, and that's a very interesting one because you get some ecologies that, that pop up associated to that from that alien planet or these hybrid versions. Um, Earth Final Conflict, uh, Gene Roddenberry's Earth Final Conflict from the late 90s expands a bit of that too. But in terms of alien ecologies, um, that would be the major ones I, I would think of for that one. Um, probably is the good ones for that. So, what are the ramifications of infinity not being real and everything being finite? Well, we don't know that everything is finite. Um, we know everything we can actually detect is finite. Uh, I should point out, you, you can never actually prove anything is infinite, either, uh, as, I mean, maybe mathematically, but you can't practically produce anything as that's uh, infinite. I'll give you an example. You've got a little chord, and we say, this line runs from here to infinity. And say, so, well, in order to actually count or verify that, I would have to take an infinite period of time to do it. So you can never actually verify that. Plus, if you're going through space in a straight line long enough or, or any trajectory felt like, you would eventually reach a place where it was so identical by random luck to the universe that you left, which would have presumably changed in the meantime anyway, that you would not know if you were repeating or not, as you had a pretty good case that it wouldn't matter. So you really can never prove something is infinite. You can prove it's finite, though. Um, but... You cannot prove something is infinite that way, not in a practical sense. Um, so, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't know that we can really answer that question properly. That's like two in a row. <laughs> it looks like we have about 10 or 15 questions huh. left uh, if we go we'll to a few minutes long. Yeah. Um, I know you wanted to make sure we cleared them mm -hmm. today. So, Primaris says, Isaac, do you think femtotech like AB matter or Planck technology is possible? Um, realistically, probably not, just because it's, it's such a small scale. Um, if you get something like magnetic monopoles working, though, or if we really master quarks better, then maybe. And if that's so, that would be an amazing thing uh, in terms of the kind of mechanical properties those could have. You have materials that might let you, you know, hold a star up or suspended by a string that thick. You know, so. <laughs> Lucky Hero 7 says, how soon can you see humanity harvesting our star? Not for several hundred years, the very earliest, probably more like thousands, just because there's so many other low-hanging fruit and asteroids. And, and unless we really grow really fast, which we don't seem to be inclined to do, you should have several hundred years where we just don't need that much resources or even power collection. Um, but any time after that, because exponential growth is exponential, at that point you might start saying, yes, let's tap this. But you might do it on other stars instead, where you like tap neighboring stars and use that same process to send them back as like high-speed battle beams back here to mine them instead of our own sun. All right. We have a username that I don't think I can even pronounce. Hi, Isaac. Metal-rich asteroids are always emphasized as the prime target for mining, mm -hmm. but I'm curious how loose rubble piles might be valuable too. Aggregates as ablative plating mm -hmm. or just as mock soil? Mock soil. Um, you could, the regular is always pretty useful. And again, there's metals in all of these. It's, it's level of density of them and what types of metals. And again, there's the astronomical definition of metals versus the, the chemical one. Um, but uh, the carbon ones are probably going to be the most useful in a lot of contexts. Now, mind you, diamond and graphene, which would be both one of the things to build out of all 100% carbon. That's that's what they're made out of. So the metal ones are most valuable for immediate usage, but the others will probably be more valuable in the long term. Flor Horbeck says, hypothetically speaking, you have invented a generator that doesn't have an exhaust and is a solution for global warming. How would you go ahead, I'm assuming that means and build it, because I'm freaking out, to be honest. But I, but I build one that had an exhaust? There was, I, that does not have an exhaust as a solution for global warming. I mean, if I had a generator that didn't have exhaust, uh, I, I would love to be a trillionaire. I, I would love to be able to patent that and uh, 
the old stamina mods, the auto generator. If you got something that is basically a perpetual motion machine, or which doesn't have to follow the normal rules of thermodynamics, um, then you absolutely should build that. Though you should always pause for a moment and ask, could this have some really horrifying side effect? To which the answer is probably yes. But <laughs> Just a <laughs> random example. Yeah. I mean, solar power is an example of something that would be kind of similar to that, if I'm, if I'm reading what you mean by that. And yes, do more of that if you can. And it's which ones catch up economically, because a lot of times you're spend more energy just trying to make certain things that are more energy efficient so it's 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 a complicated process trying to weigh what the best steps on that all but always aim for your most efficient devices it's lesser known thank you for your super chat hi isaac my birthday is coming up and i'm excited to be celebrating it early with y'all thanks for celebrating with us too happy birthday what are some environmental considerations of orbital rings such as invasive species or changes in the weather um you know there was a a YouTube video out that was like a, a, a pilot preview for a movie on orbital ring and it showed this thing that had like a base that looked like it was bigger than a state like holding the ring up in space around some plate that looked like it was thousands of miles wide and we do contemplate that as an option for building like artificial planets but an orbital ring around earth would be you know meters wide maybe one meter wide maybe smaller than that to be with maybe tens of meters wide when it got bigger um maybe even a kilometer wide and you would you would certainly see that at nighttime at that point in time but for the most part they're not that big uh they're not going to change the weather that much if you keep building bigger then it's like a billion it's like saying if i build a skyscraper what effect would it have on the weather and the answer is pretty much none what if i build ten thousand of them i don't know that does change the system a little bit right island heat islands and cities are a noticeable effect um, but for the most part, an orbital ring of itself is not all that big of an impact compared to a building of similar mass that's on this planet and is, is pretty much more direct shadows or wind blocks in the way. Uh, question from Void. If a Brownian ratchet could actually work, what would be the societal and technological consequences? Um, but going back to the invasive species one before I get real quick, I think that's just a matter of quarantine. If you've got things coming in from other planets, you want to quarantine them as best as you can. Um, but in of itself, the orbital ring shouldn't generate any major invasive species issues unless you did like the big spiraling up cases we talked about sometimes that you walk from one place to another, in which case you might have things migrate along the orbital ring across continents, but they couldn't swim or fly. Um, so the Browning and Ratchet, if, I, if I'm remembering wrong, is off the top of the head because it really doesn't cover that much, is another one of those examples of a device that's designed to use quantum or, or just grounding in motion in general, which is the title of ricochets of particles, to in some way power an engine, power an engine. And it's kind of the same problem with like vacuum energy is there's energy there, right? But uh, how do you actually make it work? So Brownian in motion, uh, one of the things Einstein actually studies, is just the different size particles, right? You're being, you got a little object that's seen in water. It gets hit by a bunch of particles on this side, a bunch of particles on this side. It, it bobs a little bit back and forth. If you could set it up so that you absorbed all the energy that one side was grabbing you and use that for some kind of mechanical motion, um, that would obviously be a good way to tap energy because it's basically something that's really lukewarm. Uh, unfortunately, there's no real thermodynamic way to make that work. If you could make it work, um, then you would have effectively a way to make energy out of lukewarm bath water, uh, which is going to violate the laws of thermodynamics, or at least if not violate them, um, heavily impinge on them and probably violate probation. Uh, so. <laughs> You like anything else that does that, if you've got it and you can make it work, congratulations, you're a trillionaire. Remember me fondly. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I get to jump to the question on the finances here. Kent Lavis, thank you for your super chat. Hello, Isaac. In a civilization with cheap energy and smart automations, would it be easy to just get rich by controlling one aspect of the energy, such as contractors or mercantile? Um. You know, if you control any large group of, of economic activity, you're going to be in a good position to get something, right? power, influence. You know, it, it depends on what the person would be aiming for and what it produces. Um, uh, so I would say probably yes in that, in that context, yes. Milano says, how quickly could smart matter realistically reshape itself? Could we get Terminator-style shape-shifting or nanoscale legs mean more speed like, or more like slime molds? Yeah, so... Um, Slime board for some things would probably be the most useful. Uh, you could do the Terminator level thing, but that's not like liquid atoms bending together. That'd be more like a bunch of 
cell-sized machines that could rapidly kind of flow around. Uh, so under a microscope, it would look like a whole bunch of building blocks moving around on legs or flagella, whatever it would happen to be. So that one might be viable. You do have one big issue, though, is you produce heat whenever you move stuff around. And so when we think about, oh, we're going to take this nanotech and it's going to go rebuild this rock. Say, so, well, you're busy reforging this piece of rock into a big carbon diamond, which sounds great. You would have released a ton of heat. Enough that if you're doing that in mere seconds, you set that area on fire and destroy your nanobots, which are never going to be temperature resistant. Mm. You're not going to make nanobots that are, are like, able to survive super, super insanely hot temperatures. They are always going to be more delicate than something bigger or made of the same kind of materials would be. Question from Nathaniel. What do you believe is the most viable solution for long-term moon colonization and living in one-sixth of Earth's gravity? Dropping a black hole into it so you can live in no more gravity. Now, um, we talked about that in Moon Maker City, and I actually do like that option the best, uh, is, is the idea of hollowing the moon out and putting a black hole in there. But um, I've also always liked the idea of terraforming it, but it would be paraterraforming. Uh, we just kind of glass it over and, uh, and fill it with green and water inside. Um, and that wouldn't super leak if you got a crack, because the moon does have enough gravity to hold on to air. It doesn't have enough gravity to hold on to air that's been excited in any way, so it will not gush up out of thing per se, other than just the pressure issue. Um, let's see. I think that really is the long-term fate of those. We turned into a gigantic megastructure of some kind, so uh, as much as I didn't like that film where they had the hollow moon uh, recently, I would say that actually is a fairly probable scenario in terms of the net effect that we hollow the moon out and used to build stuff. Zachary Bush, hi Isaac, if you could create matter and energy from nothing, could you create literal magic? And if you could create a universe from scratch, what would your universe look like? Uh, literal magic is kind of a hard one to put it to because if you go back, like, um, you go back to a few hundred years ago, uh, they stopped believing in magic because they thought it was impossible. Before that, they just thought of it as another process you could do. And so to the literal magic sense, that was really more of a, with knowledge, we can do things. And then we saw finding other things we do with knowledge, like science, that basically kind of fill that gap. Um, so... I don't know that you could ever make a literal magic since the modern context, the implication of magic is false. Um, but you could certainly make a lot of mind-bending rules on something like that. If I could make matter and energy freely, what would I do? Tons and tons and tons and tons of planets. I would just, I would mass churn them out. Big, big megastructures. Things like that. The biggest ones I could possibly make in as many of my good. That would be what I would do. So, Rob that's probably not surprising, is it? <laughs> Rob Hawk. Thank you for your super chat. What is the best sci-fi novel where Earth is invaded by a competing alien? Oh, we, uh, we answered that one while you're up. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Feel flying. If you had a chance, would you try some melange space from a uh, spice from Dune? Uh, well, melange has known side effects. Uh, it can let you see the future. It lets you age slow and be in better health. Uh, and turns you into a gigantic mutant warm. So. Mm, Yes, I would absolutely take the Spice Melange if I could. It, it it's, extends life and lets you see the future. How could I say no to that one, personally? Um, but uh, I think that that book does really handle the ramifications as them not necessarily being a good thing very well. So I'd recommend reading to it and seeing why foresight's not necessarily a good thing to have. But I think I would definitely be the point. I would definitely grab that if I could. So, yes. And the last one I have at the moment is from The Cause. Thank you for your super chat. Do you think that AI will be able to predict the future in coming years, maybe even as well as you do? Uh, I could hope it does. I don't really think of myself as predicting the future. I think of myself kind of like following logical trends down. So you cannot predict the future no matter how good your AI is. You cannot predict the future with any machine built inside the universe. That's just how that works. Um, for one thing, you're going to seriously alter it just by thinking. The heat you give off from your computer engines was going to warm things up, for instance, and change the weather. But you cannot predict these things like people think. Um, it, the complexity to back calculate trajectories of individual particles and things like that, even without factory and quantum, starts rising really fast exponentially. So even a computer as big as the universe would not be able to exactly calculate where every molecule is going to be. So that perfect prediction of the future, not going to happen. Flip side of that, though, can you predict trends? Yes, I can predict the weather decently, right? Um, not very well personally, but meteorologists can do that. We can predict where Earth or Mars are going to be in the future. And we can predict how someone's going to react if we, you know, put their hand towards their face, they might flinch, or any number of other things. That should be possible to do. And I think 
a computer probably could do that very well, but not better than a human could do. And so in that regard, yes, I think we could predict the future pretty well. And, um... Say there'll be time for another question. <laughs> Before this going on. So <laughs> I think that was probably our last question. So with that very good music going off in the background of whatever that is. <laughs> new phone, new craziness, new studio. Uh, as a reminder, we are not having a live stream next month. And then we will be having one for December 31st. And that will be our last one for at least a few months after that, if not longer. We'll be on hiatus for the spring for the live streams, though. We'll be replacing that with normal episodes for a little while, too. So, anyway, thank you everyone for joining me. For This is live stream number 59. Our next one will be live stream 60 for December 31st, 2023. And we will see you all then. And we'll also see you all back here on Thursday for our episode, which I believe is Rebel Space Colonies, followed by the Fumi Paradox Compendium Solutions, which is three hours and ten minutes long. And we will see you all then for those. Thank you for joining us for another monthly live stream. If we missed any of your questions, feel free to put them in the comments on the episode, and we'll see you on Thursday, but if you don't want to wait, you can check out any of this month's recent episodes, or see our bonus content over on Nebula at go.nebula.tv slash Isaac As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week.